This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Well, we have another episode for you listeners, and it's going to be a good one, I think. Yeah, we, we got a special guest. Special guest. Welcome, Andy. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's not, not Andy. <laughs> we got another special guest. So uh, we actually uh, heard him out in uh, Denver this year at the ETS conference. Which stands for Evangelical Theological Society. That's right. ETS and EPS. That's right. Evangelical Philosophical Society. Society. All right. So yeah, he was down there and uh, I was able to take in one of his sessions. So we'll uh, talk more about what's going on with him. But uh, let me just introduce uh, him first. This is Dr. Paul Gould we have on the program today. He teaches philosophy and apologetics in the College of Graduate and Professional Studies at Oklahoma Baptist University. He is also the founder and president of a Tutas Institute. He is an uh, author of a number of books, uh, The Outrageous Idea of Missional Professor, Stand Firm, Apologetics and the Brilliance of the Gospel, and one that just came out this year, Philosophy, a Christian Introduction, and also another one that came out this year, which we will be talking about and discussing today, Cultural Apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience, and Imagination in a Disenchanted World. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gould. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me, and thanks for making me laugh already. (laughs) (laughs) How how on earth do you write two books in one year? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. There's Actually, I have four that come out this year. Oh, (laughs) okay. It's not like you write all these books at the same time. You know, they're all written, you know, in a row, but they just happen to all hit at the same time. So it's kind of weird how it works. So it just makes the rest of us feel terrible about ourselves. I I get it. Yeah, no, you're not under the pile. Don't worry. (laughs) Either that or you're not a human being. We're not sure. (laughs) Paul may be a machine. (laughs) He may be a machine, yeah. (laughs) No, honestly, how long does it take you to write a book? Um, let's see. Well, for the cultural apologetic one, you know, it's kind of funny. About five years ago, I was teaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, and they asked me to teach a class called cultural apologetics. And so I did what anybody would do. I Googled that phrase, you know, what is cultural <laughs> apologetics? All us educators do. And, and nothing came up. And so, so about five years ago, I basically just selected seven books that I was interested in reading for myself on culture, apologetics, the gospel, things like that, and taught it. Then I taught it the next year and swapped out those seven books for se- you know seven different ones. And then eventually I'm like, you know what? I think I might have something to say. And so gave a book proposal to Zondervan and they liked it. And so it took, you know, so it's probably been coming for the last five years, although I wrote it in about two years. But really, it's been something that's been, I've been marinating over for the last two and a half decades as a campus minister and a professor and, and things like that. So yeah, you know, it's been around in my heart and mind, I think, for quite some time, probably. I really enjoyed the book and uh, going through it. I think it's timely right now for uh, people to read it. It is it Absolutely. is a really, really great book. But let's, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you like to do? Tell us about your family. I know you live in the big uh, state of Texas. Mm-hmm. That's all I know so far. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, okay, okay, great. Yeah. So I'm married to my wife. That's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> we, uh, let's see, we actually met in college on a missions trip with crew in Yellowstone National Park. And so we both have a love 
you know, even going back to our early days, we both have a love of the outdoors. And so as a family, we've got four kids, ages 20, all the way down to 12, one in college and two in high school and one in middle school. And yeah, we love to hike and get outside. I personally love to run. Uh, we're a big reading family. And yeah, so that's a little bit about me. There was one other thing, maybe just to explain to our listeners, too. You uh, I mentioned it that you're the founder and president of the Two Tasks Institute. Can yeah. you give us uh, what's the purpose and the focus of that? <laughs> what are those two tasks? Yeah, what are the two tasks? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so there's a longer story, a short story. I'll give you the medium one. But one of the first books that I worked on is titled The Two Tasks of the Christian Scholar. And it was a book that I co edited. And Part of that book was uh, based on a lecture that a guy named Charles Malik gave in 1983 at the dedicatory ceremony for the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton. And the guy's name was Charles Malik, and he basically challenged evangelicals to be engaged in these two great tasks. And the tasks were, as he put it, redeeming the soul and redeeming the mind. And it was basically this charge for Protestants to you know, embrace loving God with your mind. And that's where I got the idea for the Two Tasks Institute – but since then, since writing that first book and thinking about that address that Malik gave, and actually in, reading, in writing the cultural apologetics book, I realized there's two different tasks for our day. And they are basically showing Christianity reasonable, which has been you know, something that we've always been concerned about, at least since the Enlightenment as Christians. But then secondly, showing Christianity desirable. And so those are the two tasks. And the Two Tasks Institute is just a bunch of my friends that are getting together, trying to think really creatively about how we can show you know, the brilliance and the beauty and the truthfulness of the Christian story to a world that has these two basic objections to it. Yeah, that's great. So let's start with a definition of cultural apologetics and give us your definition that you provide within the book itself. And then we'll get more into specifics uh, with regards to that definition. So I define cultural apologetics as working to reestablish three things, the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and then what I call the Christian imagination, so that Christianity will be viewed as both true or reasonable and then satisfying or beautiful and good. And so that's the basic definition. And then I do make a distinction between sort of two levels of the cultural apologetic project. One I call the global level, one I call the local. You might think of them as upstream and downstream. Upstream, the cultural apologist works to engage the plausibility and the beauty of the gospel in the key culture-shaping institutes of the world. So, for example, with respect to truth, that would be the university. With respect to beauty, that would be the arts. And with respect to goodness, that would be the cultural innovators, the city, things like that. And then downstream or locally, the cultural apologist works to show the, the reasonableness and the desirability of the gospel at the level of individual lives. And we do that using all the tools of culture and traditional tools of the apologists and things like that. So that's basically my definition. Uh, with that definition in mind, let's jump right into things here. One of the things that you mentioned there was plausibility. This is a significant idea, particularly this idea of plausibility structures. You want to help our listeners just get an understanding of that concept and how important that is to the work of apologetics, specifically cultural apologetics? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so Peter Berger, who was a sociologist, coined the phrase plausibility structures. And this is actually really helpful 
helpful when we think about apologetics, evangelism, just and things like that. A plausibility structure is a set of ideas that an individual or a group of individuals, so you can think of a culture at, at large, is willing to entertain as possibly true. And so, for example, um, you know, if I'm walking around at the local university and I'm inviting people to come hear what the Flat Earth Society has to say about the nature of physics, my guess is many people aren't going to be super interested because, you know, the notion that the Earth is flat just isn't plausible, unless maybe you're a basketball player, to many people. Um, And so (laughs) it's just not taken seriously. And the same idea, you know, is this, you know, just as implausible as it sounds for us to say the Earth is flat, well, to many people in our culture today, it sounds just as implausible to say things like Jesus is divine or God exists even or, or that miracles are possible. And so that's why we've got to be concerned with plausibility structures of individuals, but really of cultures at large, so that the gospel will actually even get a fair hearing in the first place. Now, this is the, the fundamental task of a missionary, really. When you go abroad, and we've talked about this before on the show, every missionary knows you need to learn two things, right? You need to learn the language, you need to learn the culture, and the idea is you need to have those things in mind if you're going to be able to communicate. And so, really understanding a culture's plausibility structure is going to be essential if you're going to have a meaningful conversation. That's right. Absolutely. Um, and we use terms as Christians, especially in, a, in many ways, you know, sometimes people describe our culture as post-Christian or, or secular. I prefer the word disenchanted. But, but the idea is that in this, the world we find ourselves in, there's lots of words that we use as Christians, you know, that... God wants to forgive your soul for your sin. You know, there's three words, well, four, God, soul, forgive, and sin, that are loaded words that in an unbiblical or anti-biblical or biblically illiterate culture just mean nothing. And so part of how we love our neighbor, I think, and and you said it well just a, a minute ago, is to help them understand the concepts that we need. And that's probably one of the first things that we need to do is we need to understand our culture so that we can translate the gospel message in a way that they can actually understand it and then consider the ultimate question that we want them to consider, which is what do you make of Jesus Christ? So yeah, it's a great, great point. So you frame your book around what you call our Athens and it's a reference back to Paul, the apostle and his interaction in Athens in Acts 17. Uh, you said this, say this in your book, given the reality of our postmodern Athens, we discern at least three universal longings, which can, following Paul, serve as starting points for building bridges to the gospel. So these building bridges you reference is uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. But you also reference other words to those words. So truth and reason come together. Goodness and conscience come together. And beauty and imagination come together. Can you just unpack that for us? Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the key aha moments for me as I was um, thinking and reading and and wrestling with, you know, what was so cool about Paul in Athens is that he identifies a starting place. For him, it was this this realization that all over the city there were these idols to this unknown God. And then he uses that to launch and build this case or build this bridge to Jesus and the gospel and to bring them face to face with that question, what do you make of Jesus? And so the, the proposal in my book is that we, like Paul, need to identify starting points from which to build bridges to Jesus and the gospel. Um, And then one of the key things, I was reading Peter Kraft, who's a philosopher, and he talks about these three prophets of the soul that every human possesses, and and then these guides that God has given that help us on our journey. So each one of us, every human, whether we realize it or not, has these deep longings for goodness, truth, and beauty. 
And then we have these guides that help us along the way in our search for truth. So God has given us reason as a guide on our quest for truth. And then God has given us a conscience on our quest for goodness. And then God has given us an imagination on our quest for beauty. And then, of course, if you put our sort of theology cap on and ask the question, well, what is the source of goodness, truth, and beauty? The answer is Christ. In fact, I love how Augustine in, in mm-hmm. his book, The Confessions, said in book three, he, he speaks of God and he says, you are the beauty of all beautiful things. And then he says, you are the good of all good things. And I would just add the truth in which all true things point. And so what we're doing then in awakening these longings for goodness, truth, and beauty that all, everyone has, we're setting them on a journey that if faithfully followed, actually leads them to Christ. And so that's the kind of one of the big ideas there. It reminds me of Colossians where Paul talks about in Jesus are hidden all the mysteries of wisdom and knowledge. And really that's what you're getting at. That's right. Yeah, that's one of my favorite verses. And and if that's Mm. true, well then that has evidential value, you know, in our quest for wisdom. And that's why philosophy is, you know, the etymology of the word, you know, the love of wisdom. I think Plato actually was a little more scandalous. He talked about the philosopher as wisdom's lover, you know, that it moved him. And, And that's, I think, true of every human heart, that we're moved by truth, we're moved by goodness, we're moved by beauty. But ultimately, all of those things actually just point us on the on the the path to the deepest longing, the thing that moves us most deeply, which is our, our deep longing for God, which is actually at the base of every human heart, I think. I enjoyed in your book that you reference Leslie Newbegin. I, in my PhD work, uh, have been working in the area of Michael Polanyi. So, I don't know Ooh. if you saw much crossover there. I know uh, Newbegin was a big fan yeah. of Polanyi. And I think he saw in Polanyi a type of apologetic that really you're getting at here, uh, one that resonates with the culture and particularly in this goal of translation, being able to speak in a way that people can understand. You have a question here that you write, and I think this is a good question as we want to just jump deeper into this work. And you you say, how can we have a genuine missionary encounter in our culture? And I think that's a question that every Christian should be asking themselves in whatever context they find themselves. And so, how would you begin to unpack that for a Christian? Yeah, so that question is Newbegin's question, actually, as you know. Um, you know, it's the very first question he asks on the first page of his book, The Foolishness to the Greeks. And I find that, like you say, I think that that is the crucial question in our post-Christian age or our disenchanted age, the, the age that we find ourselves in. Um, because what was so helpful about Newbegin, I think, in much of his work, was that he understood that the gospel is never proclaimed in a vacuum. And that there is this cultural mindset, and there's this collective conscience of our culture, and there's this collective nation. And all of that together informs whether the gospel will be viewed as plausible or implausible, desirable or undesirable, or you know, neither or both. And so, yeah, I, I think that that question, we've got to be asking that question. You know, in many ways, we are like Paul in Athens as Christians now. We are different than those, you know, we've always been different than the culture we find ourselves in, but, but it's, it seems like it's starker, and, and, and given some of the, you know, where we are in the West, at least, um, we're very, our worldview is very different, very subversive to the dominant, you know, materialistic, reductionistic, scientistic worldview of modernity. And so, given that, 
you know, we need to be like Paul and be asking this question. So the way that Newbegin actually asked it, he says, what would be involved in a genuine missionary encounter between the whole way of thinking, perceiving, and living that we call modern Western culture and the gospel? And I think that that question is a great question for us today. You know, what is the dominant way of thinking, living, and perceiving? And then how can we have a genuine missionary encounter with that dominant way of being and, you know, Jesus and the gospel? It's funny these days in the era of apologetics, I find myself more and more as a translator going both ways where I find myself translating Christians to non-Christians and Mm non-Christians to Christians. Uh, And I'm always surprised or find it interesting how a lot of Christians, they tend to be really ignorant to the way that non-Christians view the world and almost find it out, you know, they often will find it quite surprising, some of these different worldviews that are that are currently being held, which, you know, just further uh, illustrates how how often we find ourselves living in a vacuum, living in an echo chamber. We're, we're really not even talking with each other at all. And so to such a degree that we find each other's worldviews, you know, quite surprising. You know, mm-hmm. wow, I had no idea that somebody thought like that out there. But as we go and seek to have, you know, a meaningful missionary encounter with people, one of the questions that comes up, and this is a question uh, that was raised to me. I actually got an email from an individual that that had heard about your book in Christianity Today, uh, and we'll post that on our show notes. It's a great article on your book or or actually um, excerpt from your book. And so, he was asking a question about where cultural apologetics fits within the different forms of apologetics. And I mean, this might even surprise listeners as well, that there's different forms of, of apologetics, you know, from classical to reformed epistemology. Would you see cultural apologetics as one of, or would you see it as one that incorporates all of? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely very eclectic in my own approach. You know, anything that works to help people understand, I'm pretty game for it. But the way that I am thinking about cultural apologetics and I kind of unpack in the book is I do carve out a new lane as so a cultural apologetic is something distinct from what we might characterize more traditionally as reason or rational apologetics. And there's subcategories there, you know, historical, scientific, philosophical apologetics. Those, those could be sub-disciplines, we might say, of rational apologetics. And that's the one that most people think of, rational apologetics, when they think about apologetics. And so you think of people giving arguments. And of course, you know, we have to give arguments. That's part of showing the truth of Christianity. But there's also, more recently, there's been growing trends toward something that I would call moral apologetics. So you have actually some friends of mine who have a whole website and ministry called moralapologetics.com, where they're examining the moral argument and the moral life and and the features of our moral life and showing how they point to God as the best explanation. And then there's another interesting movement on what we would call imaginative apologetics. And so you have books like Popologetics that shows how you can build bridges from popular culture to the gospel. And you have Kevin Van Hooser writing on theo-apologetics, which shows how our individual dramas fit into the divine drama and things like that. And actually, Van Hooser's is probably closest to my proposal, but I give a new lane in my book to cultural apologetics. And, and the reason why I do that is because I, as you stated the question, I enfold all of those other views, the rational, the imaginative, the moral, into a coherent whole that I think understands and takes into account what it means to be human as desiring animals, rational animals, imaginative animals, moral animals, and more, that are part of culture and that are shaped by culture. And so that's – so in some ways, I do – 
and maybe this is just the prerogative of the author, you know, I think that it's inclusive of all those in a way that it enfolds them into this sort of broader picture. Now, there's some that aren't necessarily as in, as inclusive. I know that uh, William Lane Craig, for example, would be not necessarily positive about cultural apologetics. Mm-hmm. What's your response to that? And, and what's his pushback to cultural apologetics? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been I've got some pushback on the part of the book where I uh, reference Bill's criticism of cultural apologetics, uh, especially since he is a part-time faculty uh, within the cultural apologetics program at HBU. And so the pushback <laughs> is, well, surely he doesn't think that cultural apologetics is bad. And I would think, I mean, my guess is, knowing Bill, that in his book, Reasonable Faith, he takes a very negative stance toward what he calls in there cultural apologetics. But if you read the actual text, what he is re- Understanding cultural apologetics as is basically Francis Schaeffer worldview analysis uh, and something like that, um, where you kind of show the bankruptcy of other worldviews and then maybe you can show that Christianity is coherent and livable and so on like that. And and he, he was pretty negative toward that. Now, I use that as a foil in the book I wrote to um, advance my sort of positive characteristic. But my guess is if, you know, if we were sitting down talking to Bill, he'd be like, hey, that stuff is all great. It's just not my cup of tea, (laughs) you know, Um, because he's very concerned with the rational apologetics, that one lane and showing the truth of Christianity. And rightly so. I mean, that's what he's gifted at. That's what he has been engaged in in the last 50 years of his life. And and that's great. Um, My proposal, though, and my claim is that it's not an either or, number one, it's a both and, and that there are objections beyond the mere reasonableness to our faith in this world. You know, some people, I always go to, um, for example, there's this French thinker, uh, Luc Ferry, that I talk about in the book, who wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. He's a French philosopher, and he, he basically says, look, I'd love to be Christian. It's desirable, but it's just not reasonable, right? So we need to address those people who want it to be true, but just don't think it's reasonable. And for him, it's because of the problem of evil. But there's other people, for example, the philosopher Thomas Nagel, who say, I'm bothered by the fact that many of the smartest people I know are Christians um, because he says, I just don't want God to exist. I don't want the universe to be like that. So there's an example of someone that thinks that Christianity is reasonable, but it's just not desirable. And so we need to have an apologetic, my proposal, that can address both obstacles or both objections to faith. And so, yeah, that's my guess is Bill's not down on it. It's just not his cup of tea. Although in his book, Reasonable Faith, he's going after one specific version that I don't. I just don't think that's what cultural apologetics is. Let's talk a little bit about what our culture is today. In your book, you talk about disenchantment and re-enchantment. I like the fact that you brought in an essay by C.S. Lewis called Talking About Bicycles, Four Stages of Enchantment. So what does our culture today look like, and how are we going to re-enchant our culture of our day? Because it's disillusioned for sure. Yeah, uh, that essay by Lewis talking about bicycles is a little known essay, but in many ways it unlocked Lewis for me. It unlocked all of his corpus in some ways, I think, uh, because he and Tolkien and others, uh, you know, that were associated with them, the Inklings, I think they were involved or engaged in this project of re-enchanting the world in many ways. So disenchantment is a word that I think aptly describes our culture. 
And it's a word that has become well used in the vernacular, at least among certain thinkers, because of Charles Taylor and his mammoth work called A Secular Age, which is like a yeah. hundred page book. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. And so, if, you know, I've tried to get through all of it. I haven't quite got through all of it. But there's thankfully, uh, you know, James K. Smith wrote a, uh, a little like smaller version of it, uh, yeah. unpacking it and so on. And so anyway, so for Taylor... And the idea of disenchantment is basically it, it describes the culture's dominant way of perceiving. For example, the culture says that the world is mundane, that the world is ordinary, that the world is everyday. And that's the dominant way of perceiving the world around us. It's not seen in its proper light. And of course, Christians view the world in pretty much the same way. But actually, if you think about it, that's not the way the world is. The world is deeply beautiful. It's mysterious. It's, it's um, to use the proper word, as Lewis would put it, it's sacred, right? It's a gift. And so, because we live in a disenchanted world where there's nothing beyond the mundane, as a result, then, as Taylor would put it, unbelief becomes possible and belief becomes more difficult. So it changes everything. You know, there's this felt absence of God that invades our culture and it invades our churches. There's this commoditization of everything that sort of follows on the heels of the felt absence of God. There's this rampant foolishness that is pervasive of a disenchanted world because there's no way things ought to be since the sacred order has been severed from the natural order. And that, of course, leads to this perverse and pervasive idolatry. So really Romans 1, you know, kind of thing. But that's the world we find ourselves in. So I think disenchantment is a helpful way to understand that. For Lewis, um, we become disenchanted when we fail to see things in their proper light. And then we re-enchant ourselves and the world around us by learning to enjoy, as he talked about in that essay, the bike, as mm -hmm. gift and enjoy it in creaturely response. And, and so the way I put it in the book, as we join with God to re-enchant the world, we do that by, number one, learning to see and delight in the world the same way Jesus does. And then secondly, inviting others to see and delight in the world the same way Jesus does as well. When you talk about uh, re-enchantment, you talk about the felt absence of God. That was an interesting phrase for me. You, you say this in your book. You say, today people feel the longing, but we cannot recognize it is, it is a divine call. The desire cannot be stamped out, but it can be suppressed and muted. The pacification of our innate desires is possible. So there's a lot of people walking around that have no sense of that divine or that transcendence. Which, by the way, is a question we receive quite often when we, we host these things called the thinking series that go through uh, five big questions people are, are asking. And one of the questions that will always come up, right, Terry, in Q&A mm -hmm. is, you know, I've got a friend and they just don't seem interested in God. You know, they, they seem quite yeah. content to go to work and, and go to their, their parties and, and do their thing. You know, so how am I to share Jesus with them? They don't seem to have any want or desire for Jesus. Actually, you actually talk about uh, a class that you gave a worldview essay to initially. That was a very interesting outcome there as well. You can talk about that, maybe. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, it was interesting. I was teaching philosophy as a grad student at Purdue uh, when I was, you know, studying for my PhD there. And... Uh, it was interesting that, you know, we'd spend the whole semester basically walking through the perennial questions of life. Is there a God? Is there a purpose to life? Can you know anything? On and on and on. I would see after spending six weeks on the classic arguments for and against God, I would see all this movement where people are like, hey, you know what? I'm convinced that God exists. And that was like as a young grad student teaching, wanting to 
you know, be a witness in the classroom. I'm like, cool, we have progress. But it was really interesting. They'd, you know, come to this intellectual conclusion that God exists and then just kind of shrug their shoulders and move on, you know, and, and kind of go on with their life without any real existential impact to their lives. And so I realized that that kind of a response is possible because of this disenchanted world that we live in. And so here's what I would say to that question, which is, I think, a really good question, you know, that people ask, well, my friend or even I don't feel this deep stirring in my heart for the transcendent or for God. I think that it's there, that we can take that to the bank that it's there, but it can often be repressed and muted. And so if you think about the set of our longings, the things that we desire as an inverted triangle, you know, at the top, you might have your surface desires. Uh, you know, I have a surface desire for a burger today for lunch or a surface desire for a nice car. But then as you go deeper or to watch, you know, a Marvel movie or something like that, you know, these are kind of at the surface. But if you go deeper, you, you begin to locate these deeper desires of the heart. And then, of course, as you go all the way to the bottom, to the apex of that upside down triangle, you have what Augustine called our deepest desire, which I think is for God. You know, hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Just above that deepest desire of the heart, though, I think you have these what I would call deep desires for goodness, truth, and beauty love, justice, and so on, and all these things. And so part of what happens, I think, is that we can go just above that deepest desire. We can join with God and reawaken people's longings for, lo for truth, goodness, beauty, justice, love, etc., through argument, through imagination, imaginative stories, through, um, there's, I kind of give all these sort of examples, how we can reawaken these longings in the book. But I think they're there. What's so interesting about our culture is the intelligentsia tell us that there's nothing beyond the mundane world. Yet our longings betray us, right? We're obsessed with the occult, the paranormal, zombies, vampires. I mean, these are what I would call false reenchantments that betray the, the longings of our heart. And so our job as a cultural apologist is to sort of follow those leads. Well, what is it about, you know, the occult or the paranormal? or the pagan myths, or whatever it is, or, or, or those little Japanese creatures, uh, you know, in your, uh, your augmented video game, uh, what is that, Pokemon, Pokemon. Go? Like, what is yeah. it about <laughs> the desire to augment reality that stirs the human heart? And so I think if we just learn to pay attention to our longings, we awaken people and send them on their journey. So I think they're there. We just misidentify them. And you're right, they are repressed. And so part of our job as a cultural apologist is to work to awaken those longings. And I love, last thing I'll say, because I know I'm, I'm talking a little here too much. Lewis, you know, is famous for the argument from desire to God. And in the many places, uh, you can see him discussing that. For example, in Mere Christianity, the chapter on hope, he gives what would many think is a classic articulation of the argument from desires to God. What's interesting, though, in other places like essays in The Weight of Glory, for example, he goes just above that deep desire of the deepest desire of the heart, that is the desire for God, and he talks about beauty. And he, that is actually an argument from desire where he uses beauty as the empirical premise to get us to God. And so, we don't have to always argue for, hey, you have this deep-seated longing for God. Sometimes we can just start with, you long for beauty. You long for truth. And that's right above it. And so Lewis kind of operates in that argument from desire, not just at that deepest level, but at some of those deep desires that are just above it. And I think those are helpful in surfacing those longings when people don't necessarily feel it. Wouldn't you agree that the opposite is true as well, that not only beauty, but evil yeah. can shake us from that disenchantment as well and start to realize that there's more going on here or that maybe I'm not as satisfied as I thought I was. 
That's right. I, I, you know, and Lewis put it so well that, you know, God whispers to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Um, I think that, so for example, the experience of evil and wickedness, whether it's out in the world or within our own human heart, there's an intuition that drives our horror of evil. And that intuition is that this just isn't the way things are supposed to be. Notice that intuition is the longing for goodness. And in fact, I parse in the book, I, I parse this universal longing for goodness that all humans have into three sub longings. The longing for justice, you know, a world made right, and there's where evil comes into all of these, actually. That's the first part. The second part is this longing for wholeness, that we don't want to be fragmented, right? We want to be whole people. And the third thing is this longing for significance or a life that actually matters. I think that's all part of this longing for goodness. And so evil fits right there. You know, we see this injustice, but we, we long for a just world. And so we've already, in confronting evil, in many ways, we're already, if we have eyes to see and if we're, you know, good as cultural apologists, we can help show them that our abhorrence to that is actually grounded in the fact that we long for something that isn't unjust, that is just. And in fact, that's a memory of a memory, as Pascal put it, of a time when, you know, we have this memory of a memory of a time when man was truly happy. That is, you know, prior to the fall. Do you are those birds in the background? I hear chirping. <laughs> yeah. What sort yeah, of wonderland do you live in? <laughs> it's hot, and so I've got the window open, and uh, my dog is chewing on a hot. Bus. I love oh, it. Oh yeah, Texas. I love it. <laughs> this has been a great talk. We need to wrap up here soon, but I just wanted to uh, go to chapter seven, and you talk about addressing barriers, external barriers uh, specifically. There's three questions that you talk about there. Does science disprove God? Is God really good? Is the belief that Jesus is the only way intolerant? Are those three questions you feel are the most uh, pressing right now for an apologist? Yeah, somewhat subjective, right? But the point there was, what are the, the pressing objections, the external barriers to the gospel that are in our culture? And since I'm writing from the West here, you know, I live, you live, we all mm. live in the West in this conversation. Um, th- yeah, I think those are some of the most pressing barriers at this time to the plausibility of Jesus and the gospel that are sort of out there in our culture. Now, of course, that could change over time. And so my point there was just to show, okay, given these barriers, how can we address them as a cultural apologist? In a way, but yeah, I think those are definitely some of the the big ones that I, that I see, especially as I'm out traveling and speaking on college campuses and around. Uh, those are the kinds of things people are asking. Well, Paul, you have uh, chirping birds in your uh, neck of the woods, but uh, here in British Columbia, we've got uh, some gorgeous mountains and grizzly oh, bears. What are those? You know, I don't even know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> And so if you ever find yourself up in uh, our, our neck of the woods, uh, we'd love to uh, go hiking with you. And Terry loves to run, too. So he would I love, love to, to run, yes. He'd love to go for a run. In fact, Terry is prepping for a 50-mile 50 50 mile run. run this summer. Yeah. Wow. We'll see if he survives. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's I may be here or may not after <laughs> August. <laughs> I have two bad knees, actually. Like, I, I playing basketball, I, I lost all my meniscus tissue in both knees. So oh, my, my Lord. Knees, my knees, I should not be running, number one. Yeah, yeah. And my knees creak because I'm bone on bone. So my oh. solution is just Ouch. to put uh, my headphones and turn up the volume. <laughs> Probably not the best solution. Just ignore it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, Paul. This has been a great conversation with you. I really appreciated the book and the integrated approach to apologetics that you're presenting in this book. Uh, it's been a, a fantastic read. Yeah, it's fantastic and very needed. So thank you. Yeah. 
You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's been great to chat with both of you. So look forward to seeing you again and meeting you in person. Just one, th- one last thing before you go. If people would like to hear more from you, where would you send them? You could uh, check out the two tasks institute.org. And there we've got a podcast that we actually do. Um, we've, we're just finishing up and we're going to upload the rest of season two uh, in the next couple weeks on the virtues and vices in a disenchanted world. Uh, season three, which will drop in the fall, is on beauty, art, and the imagination, and so on. So follow the Udo podcast. You can find it on iTunes and so on. And so, yeah, I'd start there and on all the normal social media places. That uh, would probably be fine Facebook, Twitter, etc. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us today. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about.